If I can't keep people a lot smarter than me around me, I'm in trouble. Rick Reichert is the president of Reichert Automotive Group in Columbus, Ohio. Reichert Ford was founded in July 1953 by his grandfather, Paul Reichert Sr. It was his grandfather's philosophy that to lead, you must work alongside the employees first. So he started out by working in maintenance and painting light poles around the lot. Since then, he has worked in every aspect of the business. In 2018, he was appointed co-president of the company. In his time leading, he has acquired numerous manufacturers and dealerships, one being the Farrow Harley-Davidson, the oldest Harley dealership in America. Well, we are here today on the Gravity Podcast with Rick Reichert. Rick, it's great to have you on. I've uh, been, been following you and watching what you're up to and love the energy. And uh, I know there's there's a lot of depth there that I'm excited to hop into. So thanks for taking some time. Man, it's a pleasure to be here, Brett. Thank you for having me. Obviously, what you're doing with the real estate, but with the podcast and the city of Columbus and how we're growing, it's awesome to connect with the like-minded leaders and, and, and continue to take what positive energy we can and inject it into the city to keep it growing the right way. And you're right. Yeah. You start peeling back the layers of the onion. And it's there's a lot of steps and processes that come together to find positive energy in situations. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I want to start with your your early days, your childhood, and and you know your family upbringing. You know, you come from a a family that um, has been in the public eye. Family members, you know, including yourself, you know, on television and. People probably only know a little piece of that, maybe even don't even know what they think they know. And so let's talk about your childhood and your family and you know, a little bit about your parents and your upbringing. Yeah, so I was, uh, you know, I was born in 1979 in Canal Winchester, Ohio. Actually, I was born in St. Anne's Hospital when it was, when it was just outside of downtown Columbus. Um, but my parents were both from Canal Winchester. My dad, Fred, was um, from Canal, went to high school there, uh, went to college at Case Western in Cleveland, which is always an interesting tidbit to throw in there because he was a biochemistry major that then obviously outside of college became a car dealer, uh, which wasn't not a normal transition. My mom, born and raised in Canal her whole life. My grandparents had a little restaurant in Canal Winchester. The, the Wigwam Diner is, is still there today with my grandma's old recipe. So. There's a lot of connections to that, that town, but um, I was born there, moved to Gahanna, actually Blacklick, uh, when I was in kindergarten, and um, spent the rest of my childhood there in the Windrush Creek neighborhood, which was awesome because I got to grow up with that life of, there was you know friends my age in my neighborhood with me, still best friends with those guys, shout out Tim and Casey, and you know kind of growing up together, and um, I grew up in a big, a big, a big house also. Uh, blessed to have two parents that are still married to this day, still madly in love with each other, with each other, with each other to this day, which um, mm-hmm. is kind of whatever my mom wants to have happen there. But, uh, uh, and I have three siblings myself, or four, I'm sorry. I have three sisters and a um, brother. So growing up in a house where I was the oldest boy, kind of all the girls were around me in age, my brother, eight years younger. Um, I actually got to grow up doing a lot of things with my father. And I spent a lot of time with my dad on weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we grew up doing motorsports together. Easiest way to put it, whether it was dirt bike riding, go-kart racing, cars in later years. But whatever weekend hobbies and activities that he was into, he always took me with him, which I think is really cool now. I have a five-year-old son and Mm -hmm. I look at that and I'm like, I don't want to just go ride my motorcycle this weekend with my friends and cousins when Mm -hmm. leave him at home, right? When do I start bringing the kids in? What also is cool about that is he never talked business. Mm -hmm. Growing up, I I didn't have any clue what my dad did, Mm -hmm. which made it even more confusing because he was on TV a lot. Mm -hmm. Like in the 90s, so in 1990, I turned 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And my dad's on every commercial break. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it carried on through all of the 90s. And he wrote his songs and did, you know, parodies of songs and played guitar. Mm-hmm. That and I grew up in a house where those songs were always being played. Mm-hmm. And he would want to know what I was listening to at the time because whatever was popular, he tried to change the words, mm-hmm. put it into a car jingle, put it on TV. And back then, the internet didn't exist. You know, speed of legal wasn't where it is today. He could let a song run on TV for six weeks before a cease and desist letter would come from Aerosmith and say, get that off the air. At that time, the damage was done. Enough people saw it, the ad work. So I grew up in a house that had a lot of music also. Uh, music was always a big thing. Um, my dad and I would either be talking science. Only grades he cared about were math and science. Mm-hmm. Um, the subjects that taught you how to think. You have to learn how to learn and learn how to think. And everything else you'll learn outside of school. Let me hop in there for a second. So, because yeah. this is great, you know, I was wondering, you know, what was it like, you know, when you when you said your dad was Fred, which, you know, I knew the family, but I wasn't exactly sure, you know, who um, was your father. And so I remember Fred Reichert. I mean, I grew up in Columbus and, um, you know, I was in high school in the 90s. I graduated in 93. So like, I remember that really well. We're dealing... And your dad was like uh, a big personality on television all the time. And, you know, in hindsight, I don't think I really understood this at the time, but brilliant. Like, I mean, he was brilliant and the business was booming. I mean, I remember, I mean, I, that's my, that's my, you know, recollection of it. I don't actually know the, 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 the economics, but I mean, the growth was massive. That auto mall off the Bryce Road, you know, that was like, big, big deal. You know, you didn't see things like that. It was way ahead of its time. And so I'm curious, you know, about two things that you've already said. One is that your dad didn't talk business. Um, and then two, you know, what, what? at some point, you know, you're old enough to connect the dots. He's on TV and he's he's talking about selling cars. So, and, you know, the name's on the door. So, you, you know, you, you you figure this out. And what was it like to have a dad that was such a, big personality in this town. Yeah. Um, I mean, having a dad that was big personalities wasn't, wasn't really a, a plus. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of put it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it made it cool because he did try to put himself everywhere. I mean, he was big. To, if there was a stage he could jump on, he was getting on that stage and he was getting in front of a microphone and he, was, he would grab his guitar as a reason to get up there. And before, I mean, if social media, if Facebook was invented in 1990, he would have been the first person with 10 million followers. I mean, he was mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Kind of how I, I I like to be places with a lot of intention and purpose and not just kind of everywhere like his theory was. And it's harder today too. There's so many different forms of media and omni-channel marketing. It can't possibly be everywhere anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, that, 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 that made it pretty cool. I also remember, um, you know, I played football. I went to Columbus Academy in Ghana. <clears throat> and I remember going to the academy locker room as a freshman 
And, you know, seniors, football team, you know, we're singing the jingles, singing the songs. And I got a lot of teasing because of it, right? I got yeah. a lot of that, like, the prank phone calls at home. Mm-hmm. What made it 10 times worse is when I was about uh, 14 years old, my dad and I were out riding dirt bikes. We were racing motocross, and he, he missed a jump, and he broke his wrist. And I had to throw him in an old pickup truck and drive him to the hospital and sucked that he broke his wrist, but even worse, he couldn't play, play guitar on TV. So mm-hmm. he, he convinces my mom to come do the singing and dancing on the TV commercials, mm-hmm. which then she became a staple, which then that mm-hmm. created this whole other element of celebrity and fandom and weirdos mm-hmm. that came out of the woodwork. And mm-hmm. um, eventually is why my parents in 1990, sorry, 1000, they moved to South Florida and, mm-hmm. and they lived there for 15 years until they moved home recently back to the Columbus mm-hmm. area, but that was one of the big kind of factors was mm-hmm. it did. It, it grew to the point where from a local celebrity standpoint, my parents were on the top of the list and that mm-hmm. was pretty obnoxious. At the same time, I got to watch and observe and learn a lot of things and, mm-hmm. and meet some, meet some good people and have some cool opportunities when there were concerts that they were promoting or even like red, white, and boom, and they would do a big event with the parade with red, white, and boom. And when the Santa Maria was down on the river, Mm-hmm. Uh, he would do an, I guess, an event there, but somehow we got to watch the fireworks on that ship. Mm-hmm. Like that, that kind of stuff was really super cool. Also, mm-hmm. from a mm-hmm. business standpoint, um, I would have to come to the dealership to like swap cars and stuff when I was mm-hmm. sixteen and, and some of that stuff. But but generally, he kept us away, and I mm-hmm. think he did that because my grandfather, who started the business in 1953, he eat, slept, slept, and drank the business. Right, mm-hmm. he was there all the time. He would come home for dinner and have dinner with his family and then go back to work to finish for the night and drive the wrecker. And this was back in the late 50s. And now Winchester, my dad didn't like that part of his youth. In fact, he told me that. Mm-hmm. Like my dad always brought work home and that kind of annoyed him. So he didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And that was a really cool lesson to learn from Maso because as we're figuring out work-life balance as we get become adults, figuring out how to cut that off and, and create the divide between work and home is extremely important. But at the same time, yeah, it was it was super, made me really curious, fueled this curiosity inside me because like my dad, who I love and he's awesome, he's sitting next to me and we're driving down the road, is also like their number one in the world in something. Yeah. What, what is that? What is that thing? Mm-hmm. And he didn't even like brag or talk about that. But yeah, they they were the number one volume Ford dealer in the world selling, you know, 20 to 30,000 new Fords out of here a year. It was crazy. Wow. Wild. Yeah. I mean, you know, interesting. There's a lot there to unpack. You know, um, I get the kind of um, fame piece and how the, um, you know, kind of being in the public eye could become a real challenge and and burden. And, and it could even become, you know, overwhelming and hard. And um, yet, you know, for you, um, you know, it, it's got its own kind of... Uh, uh, sounds like it had its own kind of, you know, flavor of that. And that, you know, there's the teasing and there's the like, can't, you know, really get away from this kind of thing. Um, but there's some fun too, right? I mean, there's some good perks that come with that. And it sounds like your dad, your parents um, were like, and, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like they were like pretty damn good at like uh, trying to do this right, yeah. you know, to keep you shielded from it and uh, you know to some degree to have balance to go out and do fun things together and 
you know, show you, you know, how to step away when it becomes too much. I mean, it looks like there's just a lot of uh, good, good learning and role modeling in your family. Oh yeah, and, and looking back now is, you know, dad, myself, and I have three three little kids, and, and I look back and I'm like, man, they were really good parents. Like yeah. I, I kind of feel bad because I was hard mm-hmm. on. Them. My mm-hmm. sisters and I were hard on. Them. I mean, my sisters mm-hmm. wanted everything. Um, and I wanted to do everything mm-hmm. and I just was always, and I still am, I'm on the move a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sitting in an office now cause I'm on the you know, phone with you, but the, um, or computer with you, but, but generally as soon as we're done doing this, like I, I'm, I'm up and I'm out of this building, mm-hmm. I'm moving to somewhere else. I'm not a desk sitting mm-hmm. kind of person. So I was always wanting to move and I gave them a hard time, but they, they really did. I think the thing I learned from my dad most about parenting is he really prioritized certain things like he there there was some kind of non-negotiables and kind of just some 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 rules and boundaries that that he was very you know serious about but everything else he was really cool you know mm-hmm. i mean i just think back to the high school days wanting to go out on weekends and this and that and he wanted to be in bed by midnight and have the alarm set mm-hmm. and you could actually stay out past midnight if you wanted to but you couldn't come home mm-hmm. and it was like you know to some kids i may be like oh that's awesome you're like Go out all night, like no, actually, kind of like to sleep in my bed, like yeah, kind of want to get up to mom making breakfast, like that, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so he taught us how to kind of follow some of those rules and stuff, but also have freedom. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, you think back to some of that kind of parenting stuff. At the same time, um, we're we're always hard on us about about school. Um, mm-hmm. and I mentioned the math and science part. When I mean math and <laughs> science, he expected A's in math and science. Mm-hmm. Used to drop us off at school and tell us that ninety nine percent is total failure, but mm-hmm. you know one hundred percent is the only way. Now, I actually I just teased him the other night. I'm like, you know that that was pretty uh, was pretty serious to a kid thinking that there was you know nothing acceptable below one hundred percent. Unfortunately for me, I wasn't a good kid in school. I wasn't great with the book smarts, and yeah. I and I wasn't getting A's in anything for a, a long time. It also made me realize that I'm not going to make him happy when it comes to this. I got to figure out what makes me happy and what I want to. And I became mm-hmm. one of those students that whatever book was assigned to be reading that time, right? I wasn't reading that book, man. I was mm-hmm. maybe getting the cliff notes. I was maybe mm-hmm. asking my sister if she had read it the year before. Um, but I was reading whatever book I chose to pick out of the library and read. It was just, that mm-hmm. was always the way my brain kind of worked. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn the things that, that interested me. Mm-hmm. I didn't really yeah. care about the things that interested you. Yeah, which, well, I was going to... your own, which is kind of the way it should be. But. Yeah, I, I want to actually come back to the things that interest you and and kind of how that may be similar and different than than your dad. But um, but tell me before we do that, what what happens then? Like, you know, I get, you know, high school, academy, football, you're kind of staying away from the business, but obviously aware of what's going on. Where do you go from there? I mean, you, you talked about you know school and your academics, and yep. and you know I, I was probably a lot like you as a student. You know, I was interested in things I was interested in. They just weren't giving me grades on those things, right? And the things they were grading me on, I wasn't really interested in. So, um, what what? How do you then decide to continue to learn? Do you go to college? What's your kind of next yep. step? And ultimately. You know, how does that lead you into your professional career? So that's a perfect segue because I literally dropped everything and changed my name and, and left like overnight. So, you know, when you graduated from high school, 
Yep. When I graduated from high school, I, I, I knew one thing I was, I was going to college um, and it was going to be far away. Mm-hmm. And I applied to, I mean, think back Arizona, Arizona, Arizona state kind of, you know, they look good. The pictures look cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I ended up going to SMU in Dallas, Texas. And I did that because my older sister Renee was, she's two years older than me and she was already at school there. And she convinced me to come down and visit. I had a good time quickly found out that, you know, SMU's in the Highland Park area and a little bubble in uptown Dallas, really cool area. Um, and um, I had a good Greek life. The fraternity you know, stuff was interesting to me. I was looking forward to going to college to party also. Mm-hmm. I, I was a partier. I was a drinker. Mm-hmm. Um, not anymore. We'll get to that eventually. Mm-hmm. But he, but, but that was what the kind of draw was. And I also was sick of being Ricky. I was Ricky Riker, Ricky Riker, Ricky Riker. Mm-hmm. Everybody called me Ricky. And, and the second I would say Ricky Riker, someone would say, oh, Fred's son, Fred's son. Mm-hmm. So it was either Ricky mm-hmm. or Fred's son. I didn't like either of those names. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get away. So I went to Dallas, Texas. I dropped the Y. I became Rick Riker and um, kind of got to uh, almost start kind of figuring out who I am at the same mm-hmm. time as I broke away from that, that being in the bubble of you know, my parents' life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of people you know, do that, but it was pretty extreme because they aren't known in Dallas, Texas. Right. So occasionally, you would see somebody that would notice the dealer tag and the record sticker and go, "Hey, wait a minute, I'm from Columbus. Like we're dealing." I'm like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. that's my dad. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Good to mm-hmm, see you." Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Um, went down there to bro- break away for a few years. Did the fraternity life as expected, and um, switched degrees a couple times, and ended up um, doing marketing at the end, and and wasn't quite too a graduation point when my my dad actually convinced me to move to South Florida. This is right in 2001 when they sold their house in Gahanna. He, he was going to snowbird, but then he found a house they fell in love with. And my three younger brothers and sisters were all in uh, like middle school age at the time. So they decided to move. And he called me up and he said, I'm going to have to do my work, my, my business from down here. I got to set up a studio and an office. You come down here and like help me out. I think it was also kind of him going, I want to get him out of Dallas because I wasn't really going anywhere, but I was having mm-hmm. a ton of fun, mm-hmm. a lot of fun on his dime. So he was ready to something else. And living in South Florida, I found a school uh, after jockeying around a couple of community colleges, which were awesome, by the way. South Florida has some of the best schools in the country. Even mm-hmm. Palm Beach Community College was awesome because mm-hmm. the, the professors came from you know, Michigan and, and Northwestern mm-hmm. and they were just, they were older and they were sick of the snow. So they wanted to live right. in South Florida. So they got a job and they were great teachers. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up finding a school called Northwood University, which is the only school in the country to offer a degree in automotive marketing and management, how to run a car dealership. Wow. And they have a campus in West Palm beach and that worked out great for that, that post-grad year. Mm-hmm. I spent a year in West Palm, um, which is, not quite. So what's important, that part of the story is the summer before I found that school was my first summer actually being an employee of our company. So there were previous instances through my teenage years where out of punishment, I would get sent to the mega mall. I would break curfew, I grades or something. And my dad would say, you know, until I can figure out what I want to do about this, you need to go down and check in with uh, Tom, who's the head of maintenance, they're painting all the light poles today. You're going to, you're going to paint light poles in the sun for the next 10 hours. And I do that. I come to Mega Mall and work and I would kind of take my punishment. But then it was 
in the summers in college where I finally was like, hey, I want to, you know, I'm going to get a job in the summer. Mm-hmm. My dad's saying, well, do you want to, you know, you want to do maintenance? No, mm-hmm. actually, I'm going to do something I can make some money. I, I want to make money so I can have more spending money in school. You know, he says, do you want to sell cars? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I'm 20 years old. I start selling cars and um, um, I was I was average. I was a little, you know, above average, had good energy. I, I kind of learned it. But on a commission-based pay plan, I could do good. I could do well enough in three months, mm-hmm. have enough spending money that it would last me, I know, the year of school, basically. So I had enough knowledge under my belt. Uh, and before I walked in that first day, um, I didn't know that people signed up for payments on cars. I thought mm-hmm. everyone wrote a check. I had no idea how any of the financing worked or anything until I was 20. Mm-hmm. And of course, learned it because I started selling. And then when I walked into Northwood University on my first day, and I signed up for a year of all 12 there on trimesters, all 12 of the automotive manage, automotive classes, I'm in a classroom and there's 22, 23 other car dealer kids, we'll put it that way. There's a lot mm-hmm. of family car dealerships and there's a lot of succession and generations of mm-hmm. um, dealers. And so I'm, I, I walk in this classroom and um, some, you know, good looking group of kids or hear them chatting and talking and the teacher starts asking questions. And, and to be honest with you, it was not a very impressive group. When I started hearing them intellectually and hearing about some of their backgrounds and, and things, I, it, it kind of hit me that, hey, wait a minute, every one of these kids thinks they're going to they're gonna become a car dealer. They're going to get keys to this dealership. And this is what my competition is going to look like. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this deal because mm-hmm. this is the weakest competition I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So that was my initial mindset of motivation of like, you know, I'm going to buckle down and learn this car dealership. I'm going to learn mm-hmm. the car business. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, let me just um, hop in there, there for a second. Cause you know, yeah. you said a couple of things I just want to like um, better understand you. Um, you said that, uh, you know, you're there, you're partying, you're having a good time, which is, you know, not an uncommon part of college, you know, especially in the frat world. I was, I did that too. And, you know, the party was for me was, was really um, the, the, the best part of, about college and really uh, took up a, a big part of my college experience too. And what I love about the party is um, I learned a lot. <laughs> and, right, I, didn't, I got a whole different kind of education, which is the one that actually really served me incredibly well. So, um, you know, I, I get it. Um, but at a certain point, you know, your, your dad says, you know, come to Florida and, um, and, and you do, you leave the party and, and then, you know, you kind of find your way towards this program that's going to um, put you into the family business. And I'm wondering, you know, you went from Ricky to Rick mm-hmm. to, um, you know, in a few years uh, coming back around to get, you know, really fully into the business. I- I'm wondering, like, what were you thinking at that point? Like, how did your mind change? Because there was clearly like, I want to get away. But then at some point, do you see like, actually, you know, it's my family. And, and, and I don't know, what was it that kind of got you to go to Florida and, and get into the business? What, yeah. what drew you there? You know, I think it had to do with the process of elimination more than anything, because when I first went to Dallas, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew they had a good business school. So do I take, you know, business classes as a major? Um, 
thought about engineering at one point. And I was all over the board. I had no idea who I, what I wanted to do. Um, by the time I got to Florida and I was a year in down there, um, you know, my actual love for cars increased because mm. South Florida has some, you know, really cool cars, cars you don't see. Actually, you see more of them in Columbus now. There's, there's a bigger kind of supercar, exotic car, cool car scene in Columbus today. There wasn't one 15 years ago. Anyone in Columbus that really had those type of cars, they weren't bringing them out for car shows. They were real private about it. You didn't see them ballet parked outside Morton's on High Street before they closed that. Miss that place. But they, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But, but, you know, just, just let me just hop in there for a second. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't want to get off subject, but I still find that uh, that's true. And I have a, a flashy red sports car, you know, uh, that I am not comfortable driving anymore because of a few things that have happened to me. And yeah. I still think, you know, we're not South Florida. Columbus still looks at people and, and exotic cars and decides, you know, all kinds of things about that person. Yep. You're exactly yeah. right. Columbus, I mean, it's, it's part of why, you know, some of the dealers in town have taken the tact of buying the luxury brands and they go out to the luxury stuff. We're a Ford truck, you know, now Chevy, GMC truck, Nissan truck, fleet and commercial truck business, central Ohio, southern Ohio. That's really what the core of the people are. It's a lot more, you know, I, I, I hope one day to get this high trim level Ford F-150. That's mm-hmm. a lot of the demographic kind of wish list, if you will. There's not as much of, you know, gosh, one, one day I can't wait to have a, a turbo portion Columbus. Now there right. are, there are those, but you know, um, so yeah. yeah. So the car scene in South Florida kind of sparked something. We'll keep those mm-hmm. cars down there. And the other options were kind of falling off the list. At one mm-hmm. point in time, I did a lot of theater in college. I did theater in high school. I did theater in college, did musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, thought maybe Hollywood might call. Um, mm-hmm. You know, dreams of the NFL died after high school, right? I mean, all those mm-hmm. grandiose illusions that we have as an 18-year-old of, do I want to play a, be a professional athlete, a comedian, president of the, of the United States, and you have all these options out in front of you. And then by the time you're in your fourth year in college, you know, people point the finger at you going, what are you, you going to do? What are you going to do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What are you doing when you get out? People are figuring those things out. And I got friends that are making plans for internships and all that. And that's what kind of goes back to, you know, me getting my foot in the water by just wanting to sell some cars to make some money. It went in without any pressure. Like, I didn't make mm-hmm. a decision. I wanted it to be a career. And not having that pressure, it, it kind of made me lighter on my toes. And I had fun doing the job because... Kind of like in Tommy Boy, whether they say yes or no to the chicken wings, I got to meet Lover's Pizza in the trunk. Mm-hmm. I had that kind of jovial attitude about it that allowed me to um, have some fun on the job. And then, you know, when I when I finally decided, and I really didn't even decide. Like when I when I when I mentioned I went into the classroom, and that's when I made the decision. I didn't enroll and register in that school thinking that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I literally was buying another year in South Florida because my mm-hmm. dad was offering. Do you want to take a post-grad year, stay down here mm-hmm. another year, and live in West Palm before you move back to Columbus? And I'm yeah. like, yeah, I'd like to take another year to think about this in West yeah. Beach. That sounds great. Yeah. So um, 
I did yeah. that. And then through the education at Northwood and starting to learn the business and meeting some of the people um, is what made me realize that the car business is really cool. And, mm-hmm. and being a car dealer is entrepreneurial as it gets. Um, every part of business we get involved in every day, whether it's, whether it's uh, you know, advertising, sales, uh, finance, accounting, merchandising, floor plans, banks and finance world, um, you, you name it, every single aspect we kind of touch and, and we get to, we get to play with all of it. And I'm, I get, I get bored easy and I've got ADHD more than anybody. I'm thinking of 15 different things right now. And this business is perfect for me. You have to be slightly abnormal. Well, you know, one of the things that I, I, um, I just had this discussion on another episode we recorded where the guest said that um, work is work. And, you know, you do your things you're passionate about on the weekends. And then he also said something like um, that his success brought him to passion. And, you know, that's just not my belief. I just don't believe in either of those things for me personally. Um, and what I found to be uh, interesting and just kind of hearing, you know, what you just laid out is... I also love cars. And uh, these are like, you know, boys, you know, uh, uh, toys for boys, right? I mean, it's just, it, there's something in us and, and it's not just, you know, men, but um, that, that, that does have a childlike way of loving the toys, right? And, and so, you know, I know you, you love motorcycles and, and all kinds of you know cars and trucks and I mean it's it's endless right and so I've actually thought um, in a in a past uh, you know exploration that I'd like to own a car dealership I'd like to be in that business um, you know I'd like to you know own all the exotic car you know whatevers and and so what I what I um, like about it and I think this isn't taught enough in the academic environments is that you can really make a career out of the toys of, of life that you love to play with. Now, in your case, it happened to also be in your family business. But you know, when you talk about the being in South Florida and the and the love of the car, um, you know, that's not just like, well, I'm going to stay down here in the sunshine and you know drive fast cars. It's like you 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 fell in love with cars. And got to go into the automotive business, which means you get to go to work and and do something you love. Now I know it's not you know all uh, up and to the right and easy. I mean the business is the business, but um, you know I think we should probably be teaching that more in an academic environment. And you know that's what comes through in you. It, it's almost like you got to reverse engineer your why, right yeah. before you. Find it. You have to really think about it, you know. And I and I, I obviously went through that um, Simon Sinek process a few years ago. Oh my gosh, it might have been six or seven years ago at this point. Read the book. What is your why? And we did the leadership training class. And this this consultant says to me, says, "Have you figured it out?" And I said, "Well, it can't be income or money, so it's really easy for me. I'm in a family business. It's my family. My family is my motivating factor." Family, family, family. He goes, I knew you'd say that. He put the paper over. He goes, I had the word family. I knew you'd say that. That's why you have to pick something else. Mm. I was like, what? So he gave me time to think about it. And one morning, um, one morning I leave my house. Um, I live in Westerville. I'm coming down 
270 over by Broad Street in the airport. And the night before, I took one of our Ford GT, uh, 2006 Ford GT mid-engine V8 supercar. And I took it to a uh, car show or event somewhere. Someone requested the car. So get up in the morning, I'm driving it to work. And as I'm driving that car into work, doing very close to the speed limit, this swarm of cars is surrounding me. Some younger, some older, a lot, a lot of phones out, big smiles on faces, and they're smiling and looking at me, you know. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is cool, but they're getting kind of close. So I'm gonna have some fun with these kids. So I put the car in second gear and hit the gas, and and within a quarter mile, I'm at 150 mile an hour. Boom! I get up fast and then slow back down, and you see them all scurrying to catch back up. And this swarm comes back around me, and their smiles are even bigger and taking the pictures. And that's what it hit me. It's like. My why is the Ford GT. These, mm. these cars, I have a picture on my wall of all three generations of that car. We have three mm. generations of family business. The first generation GT, 1965 to 67, were, were 427 cubic inch big block engines, naturally aspirated. The 0506 second gen cars are small block V8s supercharged. The mm. third generation cars are V6 twin turbo EcoBoost, and they all have the same amount of power. It just shows that technology and innovation and progress. Mm-hmm. That to me is exciting. And I love innovation progress. I love to design and grow and create things. Um, the other thing with that car is we bought that car. We, we sell those cars. I can work mm-hmm. on that car. We can modify that car. It's a commodity mm-hmm. that literally, what's the difference between that and the used Ford Fiesta next to it? They're both mm-hmm. four wheels a body, an engine, a powertrain. But this car I'm talking about creates emotion. And the emotion that we can create in our business through our marketing, through our vehicles, our products, if we can't put emotion behind it, it doesn't have any interest to me. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why the, the Ford GT. And you mentioned motorcycle world. Mm-hmm. I had the privilege of three years ago becoming America's oldest Harley dealer. Mm-hmm. I'm 42, but I'm America's oldest Harley dealer because the mm-hmm. Farrell Harley Davidson brand's been around now for almost for, uh, this month will be 110 years, mm-hmm. longest continuously operating Harley franchise in the country, mm-hmm. um, and that came out because of all things. Six years ago, I started working on a software project. I was going to build an operating system for car dealerships. We have very fragmented software at our disposal. There's two or three main DMS technology companies that all, anyways. It's and I'm like, why isn't there one great tool that can do all these things? I meet a company out of Cleveland. They agree to this revenue share plan, and let's let's build this software together. Let's develop software. I'm a year and a half into that project. A change in leadership uh, requires a new contract. Negotiations go pretty bad. They ask for a big chunk of money instead of a partnership. And I'm driving home. I call my uncle. My uncle Rhett, by the way, is a pivotal part of my life. My dad stayed in Florida in 2001 or 2002. When I got out of school, my dad stayed in Florida. I came home and my uncle was kind of my boss, my dad in Ohio, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. so I know uh, Rhett a little bit too. And yeah. I've, he's, he's been generous with his time with me and um, great guy, really great guy. Yeah. He's, I uh, like him a lot. He's, uh, he is, he's wise beyond his years. Mm-hmm. He's 65, and that dude is so deep with wisdom; it's unbelievable. And he's mm-hmm. done a lot. I'm not the one to get through. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Stores I can call. I got these great experienced businessmen all around me. If I can't keep people a lot smarter than me around me, I'm in trouble. Yeah. I also have had the pleasure of getting to know Bob and doing business with Bob. And he's also a, a great guy and, and a wealth of knowledge and wisdom. So you're right. You're surrounded by great people. Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me ask you um, uh, something I was thinking about earlier and kind of you know a little bit of a transition into you um, as a human, as, yeah. a, as a you know, leader of a business, as a leader in the community, as a father. I want to know, how would you differentiate yourself from your father? How, how are you similar and how are you different um, for starters? Let's just start there. Oh, I'm probably similar in more ways than I'd like to admit. As I get older, I can see some of the some funny of the how that happens, right? Know, right, it kind of pisses <laughs> you off too, but it's reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I mean, a lot of the values and principles, you know, big on family values. My dad, for his age and where he comes from, um, it's really abnormal, but he's very open and and equal. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was one of those people in my life that like, I mean, I, you know, everything when we went through in the summer of 2020 and, and Black Lives Matter and everything, and just made me think of my dad, mm-hmm. like, damn, that, that guy, man, I mean, he, 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 he never sees color. He mm-hmm. never saw anything other than people mm-hmm. and he loves people mm-hmm. and he loves bringing energy to people and bringing a, what he calls a tidal wave of positive energy. Oh, it's great. And and it and it and it really is truth. And and he would and a lot like him, I can come out and interact with a stadium full of people. And I don't mind public speaking, mm-hmm. um, especially if it's if it's I don't like being the recipient of things. I, if I'm doing it on the behalf of somebody else or or uh, an organization or a charity, or if it can make our world a better place and my projecting will help that, then I'm happy to play that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also do like to have my home and private life. Also, my mm-hmm. dad had a super home, private, super private life that, um, you know, uh, you know, he, he leave the house. A lot. His home was his castle. And, and if you wanted to get him out of the house, you'd have to drive it. Kind of still mm-hmm. do this day. You want to go to dinner with him. You got to go pick him up mm-hmm. and put your shoes on. We're going, get the car. Mm-hmm. You know, he loved kind of being home and I'm, I haven't quite hit that, 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 phase yet i'm uh i like to move i like to travel uh sporting events concerts especially you know spend some of those some of those summers in college touring some bands around the country and mm-hmm. uh, he was always a big proponent of that because going back to music music was always part of our house music mm-hmm. is another big similarity i am not one tenth of the of the guitarist that my dad is he is mm-hmm. legit one of the best guitarists i've ever heard That's he plays awesome. every day does now he, still? Yeah. Every day. He's 70 yeah. years old and now he believes it's how he keeps his brain strong. He yeah. reads a medical journal every day and he plays guitar every day and practices hand-eye coordination. Yeah. Because my grandfather, his father, died of Alzheimer's. So uh-huh. he is um doing that. And he's a great bluegrass flat picker, just uh-huh. wonderful guitar player. But and and when I was growing up, though, it was kind of forced upon me. At yeah. one point in my life, I could play 17 instruments. Wow. Yeah. All the all the horns, all the strings, 
Um, obviously, with percussion stuff a little bit easier, but you know, it, and and it made it so it almost was a turnoff. Like, uh-huh. and I was also a turnoff because when I went from Ricky to Rick, yeah, playing guitar was my dad's thing. Right, I can I can play today. I can pick a guitar. I'll I'll play a few tunes for you, but mm. but I'm not going to play on TV. I'm mm-hmm. not going to carry it out in public. Mm-hmm. My dad also almost used the guitar like a shield, mm-hmm. and when he had his shield on, it protected him, and he was a lot more outgoing. Mm-hmm. You take that off him, and he kind of retracted. You know, mm-hmm. like so. Mm-hmm. So the guitar to him was a tool in multiple ways, and and but it brought the music into my life, and I understood more about. You know, the history of rock and roll and, and mm-hmm. classic rock from the 60s and everything. And he always mm-hmm. played and pushed all that, everything from that stuff to ZZ Top, ACDC and heavy metal came from my dad. And he, mm-hmm. and, he, and he loved it all, which has led to my love of kind of diverse jam band music now and stuff that mm-hmm. pays homage to the old stuff, but will also take you into modern times and the future. And I love mm-hmm. Im, Im, like improvisational music, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so tell me so now. Yeah, sorry, so music, yeah, yeah. That, no, that's great. Yeah. It's great. And so tell me, um, tell me a little bit about you now. You know, um, kind of, um, I don't know. What, who are you? What are you up to? What What do you do? We were talking a little bit before we started about you know, kind of um, grounding and and uh, you know what kind of you know spiritual practices you have <laughs> or different modalities you're into. I mean, I know. You know, this kind of side of you that people might yeah. not know. And so yeah. talk a little bit about kind of how you're living your life as being all those things. The, the, the grounded day. Let's talk about the grounded day. I'll take you there real quick. So the only thing I'm missing from the whole part of what we've been talking about was that summer before I went to that school is the summer I met my wife. And if she mm. listens to this and I don't throw a shout out to her at that moment, then none of this matters. Nope. Smart I man. met her, dated back and forth. And that's important because I kind of put her through hell. Because from 24 to 31, I was really trying to find myself. And at the same time, didn't really realize it. I was also battling alcoholism. And I didn't, I didn't have the wherewithal yet to figure it out. And I say 24 to 31 because at 24 was my first red flag. And the first summer or the second summer that we were dating, I got my first DUI. And typical, I go out with friends, drink at the bar, drive home. Didn't make it home, got pulled over. Sounds, I mean, saying that now sounds horrible. Like people, why, why would you take an Uber? Why? That's disgusting. Well, back then, there weren't Ubers. You try to control how much you drank and you, and you go home. And the problem was- It was, was a different home. time. No different, question. Di- different no time. Question. And, yeah. and I, but, but, but as I live today with the rule of I don't regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, all of those events made me who I am today. And I'm extremely mm-hmm. accepting of them. Because that path, you know, <laughs> get this, I'm dating her, trying to convince her to marry me and all that stuff while I'm going through these DUI phases. Um, had three of them, actually. And the last one, which was June 10th, 2011, um, was the one that really uh, basically scared the crap out of me. And I was in a, a, a dealership training program in Washington, D.C., where every other month you'd go to D.C. for a week, go through the training classes. Well, it's like-minded, you know. Others in their 20s, car dealers, kids, you name it. You go to the class all day. Then you go out at night. You go to dinner. You drink bars. It's a cycle. Um, and like, long story short, I didn't make it home from that trip. I was arrested before I even got home. And, and it scared me because uh, I had no intention on drinking and driving. The car was in the hotel valet. I didn't, you know, all I had was a valet card in my wallet and nothing else. 
And for some reason, somehow in, in a night where I don't remember, I, I got the car out of valet and tried to drive home. And that just scares me. That scared me so bad that the next morning I knew how to make a change. And up to that point in my life, I always really tried to be nice to other people. I was never a mean person, um, you know, but I wasn't really giving back. I wasn't truly working with others and helping others yet in my life. I had to learn that through the AA program. I went to, um, I went to Shepherd Hill in Newark, Ohio. It's been 65 days there learning the program, who I was. Um, I got to spend 40 days in the Lincoln County Jail. Um, you want to have some time to really reflect and think. Jail, they call it doing time, and that literally is the worst part. It's awful. And I really have no interest in going back there again. So that helped me confirm my decision to say, I need to, I need to, stop. I need to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. My health improved. All these other things improved in my life. But the gift I was given wasn't just sobriety. It was spirituality. And through working the steps, um, you know, I found my higher power, which I choose to call God, and I, and I work on that relationship. And, and one of the big, um, especially for someone like me that needed extra help, um, service work is something that was pushed on me in the beginning. You get to meetings early, you help set up, you put the books away after, you read if they ask you to read. And I was kind of taught this rule that if somebody asks for you for your help and you have the means and the capability of helping them, say yes, and then figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I started doing that. I started living by that. And that's when I, um, shortly thereafter, become a father. My first mm-hmm. child's born, Elizabeth. She's going to turn eight here in a couple of weeks. And you know, I got this healthy child. And then another one came and another one came. And through this time, I'm learning who I am. And I'm trying to learn how to be a better person. All this stuff about spirituality. And um, then these opportunities start coming. Right when I'm thinking, what else could I do? And one day, my good friend, Michael, Michael Crotty, knocks on my door and he comes to my office and he says, hey, I want to give you this information on this organization called A Kid Again. And I really think this is something that you could, you, you could help out. They're a small organization. They don't have a lot of advertising or marketing. Their, their, their share of voice is kind of low. And, and I hadn't I've heard the name, but I didn't know what they did. And that was kind of the way a lot of people were responding says, will you, will you join the board on this? I had never joined the board of anything other than automotive. I do dealer advisory board and industry type things. But now I have an organization in the city of Columbus reaching out asking, can I, can I help? Um, one of the things I've learned from my father and my uncle throughout the years is they were, they were philanthropists, but they were anonymous philanthropists. Um, I, I, I'm not sure why some of the donations and things throughout the years, they never wanted um, the credit and things like that. My theory was, is, and still is, instead of just giving direct money, if I can work with organizations to, to raise awareness and to educate and, and to help them on an even bigger level, sure, could I write a check for five or 10 grand and here, don't put my name on this and go away. They might turn that money into something good, but it doesn't help raise the, the awareness. And, mm-hmm. and now I like to get involved and do those things and then promote fundraisers Instead of me giving a check for 10 grand, I can spend five to 10 grand of our marketing dollars and do some stuff off and help raise a hundred grand. So there's a way to do those things bigger and better. And it all goes back to what I've really kind of learned as my watchwords for for living, which is I try to make my world a better place. Mm. What I can influence and what I can touch every day, right? It starts in my home with me and how I improve myself every day. I wake up every day at the same time. I have the same routine. Um, physical exercise is important, pray, meditation. And I, and I usually, until this 
kids went to school at a school so earlier, I could get all those things done before my family even woke up. Mm-hmm. My day's done. Rick's day is over before anyone else I love even wakes up. Because once they wake up, it's their world. How can I make their world a better place? How, and not just, I don't mean spoiling them, but what, what can I, how can I culture them? How can I teach them? How can I treat them to make their world better? And then outside my home, whether it's my community that I touch every day, whether it's the business that I can impact, whether it's the city of Columbus. Um, and if for some reason, something that I do has an action that makes people even outside of central Ohio, makes their world a better place, then, then that's even better. So you know, trying to con- control not just the 20 square feet around me, but how can I impact um, as much as possible on a, on a daily basis? That's I, great. I, yeah. Hey, I, I really appreciate you sharing all of that. And I'd like to just maybe um, back up and have you expand a little bit because I think it's really important yeah. on the on the um, the alcohol piece, you know, the addiction um, sure. and... Um, and talk maybe a little bit about 12 step and you know your recovery. Um, I think it's often um, still stigmatized, and yeah. um, you know people um, you know are getting better, I think, you know, maybe it's just my little bubble, but um, there's less maybe than there used to be. Um, but I don't know what it was like for you when you know you um, realized that you know you were. Um, uh, an an addict and needed help, and and then you know turned to twelve step. I, I actually have come to learn that there's probably not a more successful program or modality uh, than than the A groups, right? Um, to getting people sober. So it's funny to me they get such a bad rap, and I don't know if it's. The higher power thing, or whatever it is, right? But um, you know that's even misunderstood. So, talk a little bit about kind of what you learned about yourself, and kind of um, you know, my belief is like wasn't your fault. So, you know, uh, talk about kind of what happened and what you've learned, and and the role that twelve step uh, played. Because, you know, maybe there's one person out there listening to this who might need some help. Yeah. And, and if they're out there and they want to message me, call me, email me, that's what the 12th step's about. It's about working with others and, and giving the gift away. Um, actually, I think earlier in the interview, I even used the words, um, God is my, a God of my understanding. Um, and, I, and I use that because the word God does freak people out. Mm-hmm. And whether you're atheist, agnostic, or you're non-Christian religious, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. And that's mm-hmm. one of the first things that I always say: the AA program is a spiritual program; it's not a religious program. And they just kind of choose to use those three letters of good, orderly direction, or a group of drunks, or whatever you want God to stand for. Mm-hmm. There's a way to 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 look at that. Um, I I never thought I had a problem. Um, I have a cousin who's my business partner, Jared, who's awesome. And I'm not going to expose too much of his anonymity, but he walked a path before me. And the path that I saw him walk, I was different. I didn't think I was on that same path. And then when when I had to have that realization the morning after my final arrest, looking in the mirror, crying, going, what what the hell's wrong with me? That's when it hit me. You know what's wrong with you. You've been fighting it. You've been in denial. You're an alcoholic. And I called my cousin and said, I want to go where you went. 
tell me what you did. And, um, and I was lucky enough to have someone that I could reach out and, and help me immediately. And a lot of people don't have that today. I love the fact the stigma is falling. There's a saying in AA, it's based on attraction rather than promotion. So technically, you know, one of the, the laws of the program, you're not supposed to promote the program. However, to help with the stigma, I, I'm not very anonymous about it. And my life gets better the more open and honest I can be. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and not just working with others, but talking to others and telling my story is a big part of that. In fact, there's, there's uh, different types of AA meetings. You have mm-hmm. a, um, you know, discussion meetings where you may need to re- you know, read out of a book and discuss. But there's what's called lead meetings where, you know, Hollywood, this is what always, this is what Hollywood always shows, where you get the group of people sitting in the room and somebody up front and they're telling their story and they start crying and everyone claps and they get down from the podium. That's not what it's like in real life, but it's a great way for me to share uh, my experience, strength and hope to talk about what it was like, what happened and what it's, what it's like today. And, and I share that and I use my real name and even occasionally I'll get called up to work with. Um, some other high-profile people in Central Ohio that think maybe because of their status or their income or some kind of that they're better and different, that they need to possibly call passages Malibu and spend three grand a day because that's what they deserve. But it's not all they're gonna, what they're really gonna learn is it's about working with another. And it's about it's it, it's about it's a disease. There's nothing wrong with us. It's a disease, it's an allergy. Uh, it's, it's an inception in the mind and an allergy in the body. Mm-hmm. And some people have obsessive thinking about drinking or premeditative thinking, or they'll work all week and they think about what they're going to drink on Friday night. That doesn't make you an alcoholic. Um, what it is, is it's when that mental obsession, then when you introduce it into the body, the physical allergy that you can't stop. And, 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 and it's the American Medical Association. When I was in treatment in the summer of 2011 is when the AMA mm-hmm. came out and said, Yep, alcoholism is a real disease. Addiction is a real disease. And, um, and the way I look at it, my you know, AA meeting I go to every Monday night off of East Broad Street is my treatment. Mm-hmm. And I go in there and I get open and honest and, and I get to vent a little and I've got like-minded now or friends and family in the room mm-hmm. and um, people I'm very, very close to have been through the same thing, can give me great feedback and share their experience. And then it resets my spirituality and mm. I need that sometimes. Yeah. I need that big time. And it sucks too. They happen in churches. Not all A meetings are churches. Sometimes the mm-hmm. church scares me away. No, they're yeah. going to bring me into this church and stuff God down my throat. And that's mm-hmm. not, it's not at all. It's a room off the side mm-hmm. of the church and no one in that room cares at all what your religious beliefs are. It's nothing mm-hmm. to do with it. Yeah. I appreciate you saying all that and really sharing. And, and, you know, this is why I uh, love doing this podcast is because there's probably a lot of people that don't know that about you. And, um, you know, people create all kinds of stories, especially if in your multi-generational business and they don't understand there's a human being on the other side of that commercial that's just like you, you know, that, um, you know, is, is going through life and finding it to be hard, really hard sometimes. And, um, navigating through it, you know, and and so you know, I, I love kind of being in that with other people because it feels very uh, real, you know, and and relatable, and and hopefully other people um, will hear that too. And and I know that you 
um, are sharing that, you know, openly with the world. And, and that's how we help each other. I think you're right about the, you know, it's about being together in this, getting out of the dark, into the light, sharing experiences, connecting and supporting each other. And uh, boy, I, I think, you know, you're a, a phenomenal example of that. So I really give you a lot of credit and, and appreciate you sharing. And I really appreciate that. Um, you know, and, and actually I, I feel bad for, and I can't relate to young women, but, but I work with a lot of young men that are in their 20s. And what social media has created with pressure and these deadlines that they're making up in their heads for success and things they need to achieve is putting additional pressure. I got to tell you, my 20s were the hardest 10 years of my life. Growing up in the 20s as a, as a young male, I didn't know who Rick was yet. Hell, I didn't know if I was Ricky or Rick or who that guy was or what that, what that meant. Um, you know, you want everything, but nothing comes yet. You have to have incredible patience. Um, um, and then all that kind of changes it. It's just the, the pressure on the mm-hmm. 20s is, is awful. Yeah, it's very hard. I agree. That would be the you know, yeah. patience, patience. You know, everything happens when it's supposed to happen. Yeah. Keep striving yeah. for something and, 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 and don't let the pressures of stuff. And if they do take you too far, there are absolutely places to go. There's friends everywhere that want to help you. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of good people in this world that have their arms out. Just yeah. if you open your eyes and look for them, they will appear. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a really um, important point. You know, the 20s, um, you know, you shout it out your wife and I'll shout out mine, you know, talk about patience. <laughs> I mean, I got, I got married when I was 24 years old and, you know, trying to figure life out, being a, a you know, working a career, starting a business, a dad, a husband, whatever else, man, um, you know, thank God for our wives because, uh, you know, it, it is a really, really hard time um, if for everybody, for women and for men. And with men, you know, there is a lot of um, of generational um, conditioning and, uh, you know, stuff that I think um, men have a harder time often uh, really um, being honest about and open about, you know. Um, And I don't want to, you know, stereotype, you know, gender, but um, I have also met a lot of men that, you know, kind of share that same story and belief. So just my experience. Uh, but let me ask you one last question on the addiction piece before we start to wrap up. Um, how do you feel about kind of addiction? Um, I know you're sober, but you know you talked about social media, and um, there's all kinds of socially acceptable addictions, right? Work, busyness, social media, um, pornography, food, sugar, right? Venture, whatever it is. Some may be healthier than others. Right, some aren't going to blow up your life, and some, you know, um, might even be good. But I'm curious, what's your thought about, you know, the kind of, you know, concern that you hear a lot about whack a mole? You know, that, you know, you kind of kill one addiction and another one pops up. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your kind of how you've navigated through um, that. Yeah, that's a great thing. Now that I think about it, um, you know, one of the things I was taught was when you give up. When I, when I gave up alcohol, I was giving up my best friend, right? Booze was my best friend at that point in my life. And that sounds kind of weird, but you think about the amount of time you spend together, how much you think about each other, you know, and, and then this vacuum is created. 
And it's extremely important to fill that vacuum with other activities or hobbies or trying to find something, uh, you know, other ways to pass the time. Because what I, what I think what you're talking about is then this time passes and you get bored and it's like, well, let me, you know, take this next thing because it's not the same as the thing I had a problem with and kind of transitioning that around. I, you know, I think the easiest one to talk about this most popular day too is marijuana. And I'm, and, and I'm an advocate of it and I'm a medical marijuana card carrier. And you, what I was taught was, you know, marijuana is not an addictive substance. So I'm not a doctor, I'm not pulling any, not, I have no opinion, but I was taught it's not an addictive substance. What I was taught in treatment is to give it a few years to learn the truly, you know, completely clean me. Um, I mean, I even didn't reintroduce caffeine for a few months and, and really wanted to be as clean as I could and see how I felt. And then when the timing was right and I felt safe, um, I was kind of curious and I decided to partake again and it didn't affect my cravings for alcohol. It's something I can take when I want to or leave it. I don't have, you know, it, it's not the mm-hmm. same as what the alcohol was, was in my life. Mm-hmm. I, I think the whack-a-mole theory has a lot of validity to it. And people might jump to the next thing that might be. And what you got to ask yourself is, is it a bad thing or a good thing? Mm-hmm. You know, if you replace alcoholism with a porn addiction, like it's mm-hmm. not doing the physical harm to your body like alcohol was, but, but it's definitely something that is, you know, taking that, that, that sensory part of your brain that experiences euphoria and it's trying to feed it with something else. Mm-hmm. So, and if you find yourself needing it certain times of the day, you can't, you can't stop or turn it off when you want to, or it's literally creating impact on your life in a negative way. You're missing out on things. You're, you're losing people or, or jobs, or um, you're not making it to events because you're tied up in that thing. Then it's become an issue. And, yeah. you know, if, if I was in one of those um, situations, I would definitely look to, to reach out to somebody to figure out, how to get help for that. Or like I learned in the A program, you, you do a four step and you write down the inventory and you figure out what's good and bad. And you go through those debits and credits and, and uh, you figure out what you have to do positively to reverse that. And, and that's, and that's a practice that takes a while. You know, in the meantime, I think the biggest thing is awareness, acknowledge the second something becomes having a negative impact in your life. It's worth looking at it and saying, I don't need that or anything in excess, right? If your thing's food, mm-hmm. you love McDonald's, but you can't, but you can't stop at two Big Macs. You need three or four. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's help out there for that. Mm-hmm. As, yeah. You know. Yeah, it's good, Rick. Thank you. Um, hey, really appreciate the conversation, the time, again, all that you're doing in this community. Um, let me give you a chance for any final thoughts as we wrap up. Uh, no, I, I would tell anybody listening, uh, keep, keep pushing the positive, keep helping this great community. Columbus is an awesome city. We're still considered young and growing. We have some great young leaders in this city doing remarkable things. Keep pushing the positive and, and this, this, this will be a really cool place to live for many, many years to come. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. 
please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 